Happy New Year and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. The NFL playoffs are officially here and that means tons of coverage up on the site. Robert Mays is writing about Philip Rivers' legacy, Danny Kelly discusses Russell Wilson and the Seahawks offense, and Danny Heifetz gives us his wild card weekend viewing guide. On the pop culture side, we have a live Golden Globes wins pool featuring Sean Fennessy, Amanda Dobbins, Chris Ryan, Micah Peters, and Kate Hallowell. You can check that out on YouTube. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Kate Nibbs. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us in popular culture. It's a new year. New me. Woo! Time for resolutions, a time to make positive changes, and hopefully a year to finally stop falling for weird wellness startups in Silicon Valley's strange promises. We're going to discuss the story of Ambrosia, a company selling transfusions of young blood to people. The Huffington Post published an investigation into the company last week, and we're going to talk about how it fits into a larger trend of sketchy wellness companies getting way overhyped. But first, we're going to talk about the bad blood between the Saudi royal family and the comedian Hassan Minhaj. And it's dragged Netflix into the center of an argument over censorship in countries with repressive media regulations, such as Saudi Arabia. Just a few months ago, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a.k.a. MBS, was hailed as the reformer the Arab world needed. But the revelations about Khashoggi's killing have shattered that image. And it blows my mind that it took the killing of a Washington Post journalist for everyone to go, oh, I guess he's really not a reformer. Meanwhile, every Muslim person you know was like, yeah, no shit. He's the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Kate, are you familiar with... Hassan Minhaj. I know that he's a comedian, but refresh my memory about the specifics. He's a stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. He is a former Daily Show correspondent, which I feel like that's where a lot of people would know him from. He and he did the White House Correspondence Center. Yeah, yeah. Right. That was like a few years. It was the I believe it was the first Trump era (laughs) White House Correspondence Center. And currently he's the host of Patriot Act which is a show, uh, sort of like stand-up comedy meets explainer journalism, (laughs) meets daily show journalism show. Okay. Um, It's a one-man show, at least on stage, and it's on Netflix. Basically, like, Patriot Act is like if the daily show had a host, but they didn't have any of the correspondence, and they didn't do the interview segments, and they just, the whole show was just sort of a long-focused monologue about like the most distressing news items of the week or of the month or of the year, right? And so like for the purpose of this story, I just want to note up front that Hassan is an Indian American Muslim. I've seen his comedy live a few times and he often makes a point of addressing like fellow Muslims and fellow brown people and his comedy can feel like it's sort of a discourse, a global discourse about Islam and about brownness. So That's important because the very first episode of Patriot Act is all about Saudi Arabia. Um, And we, I mean, you and I have spent a couple episodes of damage control talking about Jamal Khashoggi and human rights in Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman. A lot lot going on in Saudi Arabia at the moment. Right. And a lot that has a lot of Americans paying attention to Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia at the moment. 
Well, Hassan uses Jamal Khashoggi's death as a springboard in that series premiere episode of Patriot Act. He uses it as a springboard for this like broader, exhausted sort of whirlwind condemnation of the Saudi royal family. Right. And specifically, he spends like a great deal of like this, this, I want to say it's like 15 to 20 minute segment characterizing the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, as a thug and a fraud. Um, it's harsh. It's like very jokey, but it's also very like the tone of Patriot Act is very like. You're not pulling this. any punches. Right. Yeah. Totally, totally. So inevitably, the, the Saudi royal family has cited the Saudi Arabia episode of Patriot Act as a violation of basically there's a public morals provision in Saudi Arabia's cyber crime laws. Can you not talk shit about the royal family? It's not just that. It's okay. it's it's even more vague and broad than that. It's like about the royal family, but it's really specifically worded as public morals. So anything that would would cause like civic or moral panic, right? And and that just gets to be interpreted as dissent. Gotcha. Right? Dissent against the government, against the Saudi royal family. So basically the Saudi government pressures Netflix to pull the episode in Saudi Arabia. And that's what Netflix does. They pull the episode in Saudi Arabia. And I think surprisingly, quickly, people in America complained. They accused Netflix, not to mention the Saudi government, but mm-hmm. they accused Netflix of censorship. So what was his response like? Well, okay, so like Hassan's response is pretty good. He says, clearly the best way to stop people from watching something is to ban it, make it trend online, and then leave it up on YouTube. <laughs> Let's not forget that the world's largest humanitarian crisis is happening in Yemen right now. Please donate. So I, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's sort of like answering the Saudi government by way of like the Streisand effect, right? Yeah. The Saudi Arabian Streisand effect. The Saudi, the Saudi <laughs> Streisand effect. Yeah. Yeah. There was an an initial tweet I remember reading, and the tweet sort of characterized this whole thing as Netflix pulled this episode. And I had watched the episode about Saudi Arabia, and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. But the wording of the tweet seemed to suggest that Netflix had taken the episode down, right, and had, like, basically retracted it, which is not really what had happened. Well, so did it just – so it's not available in Saudi Arabia anymore. Right, that's what actually happened. So it's sort of firewalled from a specific nation. Right. And – that's sort of why I think it's surprising that there is this U.S. viewer, U.S. critic backlash to Netflix. Because this is – what Netflix specifically did was they cut off access to the episode about Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia. You can still – I think contrary to a lot of the headlines about the story, like you, Kate Nibbs, can still log into Netflix and watch the series premiere of Patriot Act on Netflix. They didn't actually take the episode down. But if you were wanting to watch it in Saudi Arabia, you'd have to use a VPN. Right. Totally. And I think that Netflix seems very surprised (laughs) by the backlash to this. And I, frankly, am actually kind of surprised by the backlash to this because I find myself in this uncomfortable position of, of, on the one hand, thinking that censorship is bad. Well, yeah. Right. But also thinking that, like, uh, Netflix is hardly the first and only mass media company based in the United States to have a global business where they find themselves in this uncomfortable position of having to adopt to 
the media regulations of authoritarian regimes that do not share human rights outlook with the United States. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting, and I think Netflix probably thinks it's frustrating, that people are are acting like Netflix invented censorship. <laughs> I mean, hopefully this will be a, a jumping off point for people to think more about how difficult it is and how to proceed when it comes to American-based companies dealing with how, like, should we even be in Saudi Arabia at all? Should, like, I feel like it, it sort of opens up this moral question of, like, if you disagree with the regime, should you not even be doing business there? Right. Like, that's been sort of a big discussion about how companies like Google should approach China. I mean, I understand why people are upset about this. It is upsetting. I think the blame is lays with the Saudi government more because I think Netflix didn't really have a choice, right? Like, it was... Well, I think people feel like they could have paid a fine, right? Because I feel like the penalty specified is like, I I was talking to Allison Herman, who's Mm -hmm. our TV critic at The Ringer, and and the way she phrased it, I think she was the person who shared the tweet, and that's how I first saw this story. Mm -hmm. But like, she phrased it in terms of like, well, why didn't Netflix just pay the fine? Right? Now, I should specify that I believe the fine is like $80 million. (laughs) So I, you know, I think on the one hand, like, I, I used to work in public relations and I can tell you that like a single day, like again, if maybe this story gets worse for Netflix, but a single day of bad press for a company as big as Netflix is not worth paying $80 to avoid. If you're just looking at it as like a public relations thing, like mm-hmm. that's insane. Like no one's paying $80 to like avoid having like Vox run one critical article about Netflix. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But yeah, I would say, that since the death of Jamal Khashoggi, right? Mm-hmm. Like one interesting element of the response from the American side has been like Congress, strangely enough, right? Because while Trump has sort of been, Donald Trump is is close to Saudi Arabia. He's close to Mohammed bin Salman. So is Jared Kushner. Like he has this this interest in sort of cultivating like a good feeling between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. But then you have you know, all of these senators and Republicans and Democrats who, after the Jamal Khashoggi murder, you know, they were sort of openly musing about, like, what does it mean for Americans to be doing business in Saudi Arabia and be doing businesses with the Saudi royal family? Like, they seem to be having a sort of prototypical version of this, like, quote unquote, awakening mm-hmm. of, like, what it means to do business with this country. Mm-hmm. And, like, the Netflix... This Netflix fiasco with Patriot Act feels like the pop culture Twitter <laughs> version of of that. Or yeah. You know what I mean? And it's strange because I don't know that I – it feels like you can only – if you pose that question to Netflix, I don't think that there is some – like what is, a, what is a Netflix viewer supposed to do right now? Like I don't think anyone's necessarily threatening to like cancel their Netflix subscription over the fact that – Netflix pulled this episode of Patriot Act. Well, I mean, no, this is not the only regulation it has to follow. Like when I lived in Canada, there's Canadian content laws. So it had to put a bunch of Canadian shows on its Netflix Canada streaming. This is just a part of Netflix negotiating with different countries. And like Netflix Thailand couldn't have shows criticizing the Thai government either. You know what I mean? Like this is just part of a, this is part of a thing that's been going on since 
these companies went global. Right. Totally. Let's talk about like the episode itself. So I've watched the Saudi Arabia episode mm -hmm. in question. I watched it like right like when the series premiered on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And I will say that the thing that maybe has led to this international incident is the fact that the episode is pretty hard. Like the episode almost seems designed. It, it's almost that episode is very it's very critical of Mohammed bin Salman. It's mm -hmm. very cathartic. So, for instance, I've seen, like, uh, Hassan was doing a sort of stand-up. It wasn't, like, a properly, like, build comedy tour, but just mm -hmm. as promo before Patriot Act came out, mm -hmm. he was doing shows. And I saw him at Carnegie Hall. And he was doing, before I even knew that there was a Saudi Arabia Wait, so episode, are you right? suggesting that he purposely tried to get banned? No, no, okay. no, no. I'm just saying that, like, he did comedy about, he was doing comedy about Islam. And he mm -hmm. was doing, I remember, like, part of his Patriot Act stand-up bit was about Saudi Arabia. And I just, I, I have this sense with him that, like, he is interested in shit-kicking mm -hmm. about, like, religious conservatism. And this sort of like religious conservatism embodied by the Saudi regime. And it's just like when I finally saw that episode of television. Yeah, it, I don't think it, it's designed to like provoke <laughs> the Saudi government. Mm -hmm. But it 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 did seem to be the most overtly politically antagonistic thing I've watched on Netflix. That is nonetheless like a super normie mainstream thing. Like it's a Daily Show alumni. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like. And yet it, it just seemed like a very for Netflix, again, for a piece of exclusive Netflix content, it mm -hmm. seemed to have an edge, even though, again, it's like I otherwise think of Hassan is like he's this, this like cute comedian with like nice hair. Mm -hmm. It definitely that episode of television seemed to like in retrospect, it seems like maybe it's something that like Netflix just was not designed to handle if it like considering the effect it had and the response it sort of... I think that any other service would have handled this the same way. Like, if if the show was on Hulu, if the show was on NBC or HBO, they would have pulled it, too. Okay, but then I have, another, I have a yeah. question, which is, do you think... It wouldn't have even been available if it That's was, my yeah. question, though. My question is, is there, like, would it have been better if... Okay, Netflix hires Hassan... Pay to produce this show. Mm -hmm. Hassan says, I want to do this episode about Saudi Arabia. They let him do the episode and they just never release it in Saudi Arabia to begin with. Do you think morally, like, is that better? Is that worse? Like, I can't even, it, it, I can't even wrap my head around, like, whether that's like an ethically preferable course. If Netflix had just never released the episode in Saudi Arabia. No, because I think they were trying to put it up in Saudi Arabia and then they got fined and yeah. took it down. Yeah. So at least people could have seen it for a little bit. Yeah. But again, I think that the, I think that the real bad guys in this situation is the Saudi Arabian government. Right. And Netflix is obviously morally compromised for like a billion reasons, but I don't really think that them, I think this was a, a probably a tough decision, but I don't, I don't know. I'm not really worked up about, about this well, towards Netflix. Right. And that's actually what I, I want to, bring this to right mm -hmm. is like there's a version of of the backlash to netflix that could be the beginnings of a sort of broader like among among media critics or mm -hmm. you know among like arts critics like commercial like movie tv critics 
it could be the beginning of like a rethink of what it means that like American media companies and studios like make these compromises so that they can operate in international markets. Yeah. Or it could just be like a bad news cycle for Netflix and then all the TV critics forget this ever happened and never pay attention <laughs> to any global markets ever again. I mean, it's probably going to be the second one, but I hope but it's why? the first one. But why? Like, why do we? Because I think it's probably going to be the second one, but I also don't know why I, I just assume that no one's actually going to care about this in the long term and we're never going to. Well, okay. So I think people do care about tech companies making compromises when it comes to dealing with oppressive regimes. I don't think they're going to get super worked up about streaming services because in my mind, that's, it's obviously not good. It's bad, but censorship is bad. <laughs> yeah. But there are like way more disturbing scenarios. Like I was just, I just saw a tweet like two days ago and it was about how Microsoft was censoring the account of an activist in China who had, uh, you know, been agitating for democracy for a long time because they were trying to abide by the Chinese government's rules. Like that's, that's hor way more horrifying. And I think that Microsoft is way more culpable in that instant because it's like silencing an individual. Right. That's an example that I think we should be getting more riled up by or prioritizing higher. It's like, how do we stop American companies from collaborating with oppressive regimes to silence dissenters? That's a bigger priority. Right, right. <laughs> then right. how do we stand up for political comedy? But then, yeah. yeah, but then I guess on the flip side of that, I just, I think, at least ideally, I think, okay, but getting worked up... It, like in support of Hasan Minhaj, mm -hmm. maybe that's a gateway drug to yeah. getting worked up in favor of like dissidents, like yeah. true dissidents. It could be. I hope it is. Yeah. Possibly. Because it is, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if these, like if Google and Facebook and all of the big tech platforms should just not engage with China, should not engage with Saudi Arabia because... That's not very helpful for the citizens of those countries who aren't, you know, it's not their fault that they're living under such oppressive regimes. I don't know what the answer is, but I think we should all be talking about it more because it's really disturbing. But, but the, this particular incident is less disturbing to me than a lot of others because Netflix changes its content based on regions for like a ton of different reasons. And this reason sucks, but like, I would worry about Google and China before I would worry about this. Wait, Kate, mm -hmm. we're going to launch a coup against our intrepid producer right now to talk about Netflix <laughs> just like a little bit more, just a little bit. I'm down with that. Kate, mm -hmm. have you seen the critically acclaimed movie Bird Box? I'm a human being. So yes. Uh, a Netflix exclusive. Everyone saw it. Everyone saw it. Netflix actually publicized how many people have watched it. They did. Billions of people. But worldwide. like, I don't know if I trust them because they're. I don't. I certainly don't. They're but it seemed like a lot of people watched it. There's a lot of memes. Yeah. We're going to talk Tons about Tons of memes. memes. I'm going to briefly, I'm going to try to explain to listeners what Bird mm -hmm. Box is. They've probably all seen it. They've all seen it. <laughs> Seven billion people watch Bird Box. It is a movie starring Sandra Bullock. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a horror movie of sorts. There is 
a monster of some sort that is on the loose and that everyone in the world is hiding from. And apparently it's like, it's this beautiful monster that if you look at it. I don't think it's beautiful. But people describe it as beautiful. Okay, okay. so it's a monster. And the whole effect is that if you look at the monster. You go crazy and kill yourself. What? No, you go crazy and you start raving about how beautiful the monster is and how other people need to see it. And and you start like all the people but around. Only some people did that. In the well, only movie. some people. Did Were you that. paying attention? The movie is inconsistent. <laughs> it's so inconsistent. It's inconsistent. Some people they mm-hmm. see the monster, they go crazy, they start raving, and this is a very gradual change. Some of them undergo. For some other people, it's very immediate. Most of the people they just kill themselves. No. <sighs> yes, they do. But I'm just saying that like certain plot important people don't just kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Instead. They start preaching the gospel of the monster. I had a lot of questions when I finished this movie. This movie's weird. It's a weird movie. I and... kind of think Netflix should have banned Bird Box <laughs> <laughs> from everyone. Oh cause... my god! Well, but there's a reason we're talking about this. <laughs> it's not just we saw a movie on Netflix and we're perplexed by it. So Netflix is hyping the hell out of this movie, Bird Box. Mm-hmm. Not just through marketing it, but through insisting that, like, an unprecedented number of Netflix users have watched it. That this is basically, like, a hit box office success for a movie that didn't even have, like, a theatrical run. Mm -hmm. Right? And the reason that's remarkable is because Bird Box is not... It would be one thing if Bird Box were just, like, this amazing movie and it had this word of mouth and it's, like... Everyone loves Bird Box. And it's like, if it were like Stranger Things, like Stranger Things is a good example of a Netflix thing Mm -hmm. that the people who watched all of it loved it. And you sort of believed its word of mouth. And that's how it became the phenomenon that Stranger Things season one was. Bird Box is a critically reviled movie in the tradition of other critically reviled. I thought it was mixed reviews. I think that, I I think relative, I, I think a lot of critics have savage that maybe it's just that the critics who who don't like this movie have mm. been very articulate in their dislike for this movie it was dumb as hell it's weird i, I like i kind of liked it was dumb <sighs> okay so the bird box problem is this mm. if you look online <laughs> if you look online you will see lots of like memes about bird box you will see, like, it's a movie in which people wear blindfolds to mm-hmm. avoid seeing the monster. It's a movie that has so many weird, almost like the room level absurd moments of just acting mm-hmm. and like plot. And people are memeing this movie. And a lot of these memes have a lot of online traction. And they're so disproportionate to how kind of like janky. And unbelievably, like, I think, disagreeable the movie is that it feels like there's some weird online conspiracy to pretend that Bird Box is a thing. I just think that it was Christmas weekend. Everyone needed a movie to watch with their family. Sandra Bullock's a crowd pleaser. People like horror. I think Bird Box, like, I think when when it comes to, like, what came first, the Bird Box being watched by everyone or the memes... Was Bird Box being watched by everyone? Right. Yeah. But that's like, that's where I am. I mm-hmm. sort of agree with you. But I feel like we work with a lot of people who alternatively think that 
that hype was manufactured by mm-hmm. Netflix and it's all part of this sort of obscured marketing rollout for this movie mm-hmm. and that like online there's a sense that like Netflix is behind all of the meme accounts and they've single-handedly launched like ha- like lovingly crafted every bird box meme and yeah. released it and they're just really trying to make fetch happen with this movie. I would be very impressed if, if they did that. Yeah, that would say, that would say a lot about like the power of marketing yeah. if that were true. Cuz I'm like the most skeptical person. Like mm-hmm. in covering rap music, I am the first person who will unjustifiably with no evidence whatsoever just accuse every like slightly overproduced rapper of being an industry you love, plant. Yeah, you, uh, I was going to say you love industry plants. And that's the thing, it's like Bird Box is the Netflix movie. That people look at and, and are like, this movie is an industry plant. I don't, yeah, and I don't think that's true. I remember I was reading Emily Yoshida's review of it and mm-hmm. she said it was as though it was designed by an algorithm to like appeal to the broadest possible audience. And I think that people just were like, yeah, I'm going to watch this mediocre movie starring Sandra Bullock because why not? Yes. I did. <laughs> I suspected it would be stupid and it was, but I, I was along for the ride. Even though I was like, why can't they go through walls? Yeah. Why is Machine Gun Kelly in this? Yeah, Machine Gun <laughs> Kelly, I almost left the the room in which mm-hmm. my mom was watching this movie because Machine Gun Kelly was... Mm-hmm. I didn't take it seriously. And by the end of it, I really liked it. But yeah, I, I guess I, I just wanted to get out our sort of thoughts about Bird Box just because it, it seems to be a weird, like, marketing is gaslighting... <laughs> thing that played out on the internet for all yeah. the holiday break. Yeah, and I do think a big part of its success was Netflix's Netflix just inundating you with it was always on the top of the feed. You felt like it was the marquee thing Netflix was presenting this Christmas. I think that was a big part of its success. But, but, but I don't think that there was like a really sophisticated like bot seeding on Twitter fake meme situation. What's your favorite part of Bird Box? Um, I, oh, when the monster was in surrounding the SUV. That was scary. Okay. My favorite part. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't talk about my favorite part without spoiling it. Am I allowed to spoil Bird Box? I don't know. I feel like everyone's seen it, but. I'm spoiling Bird okay. Box. Skip ahead like 60 seconds if you don't want spoilers. My favorite part is when Sandra Bullock's boo in the movie, Trevante Rhodes, mm-hmm. has to sacrifice himself. No, I was sad. No, I was I, like, but I loved it. I, I thought it was the one point where they like had a coherent idea about what the monster was. Be- mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like, again, you look at the monster, you go crazy, you gen- you, t- you kill yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's the moment in the movie where like, he has to create a distraction because all these these weird people who have already been turned by the monster have swarmed the house and they're mm-hmm. trying to turn Trevante Rhodes and Sandra Bullock and the two kids. Mm-hmm. And Trevante Rhodes creates a distraction for Sandra Bullock and the kids to escape. And there's a moment at which he like he's shooting the people that are trying to overtake their their last stronghold. Mm-hmm. And he sees the monster. And you think that like. Him seeing the monster is going to prevent him from killing the last person who might go get Sandra Bullock. Mm -hmm. But he sees the monster and he has a tear roll down his face and then he shoots the guy anyway. And it's like him overcoming the power of the monster only briefly before he dies. And I thought it was beautiful. That was nice. I I agree. 
That was nice. Bird Box is beautiful. Literally billions of, of people have seen this movie. It is the, the biggest. Billions. It's one of the biggest. It's, it's Oscar hype, even though it's not even eligible for the current Oscar year. I can't believe you're such a Bird Box fanatic. Sandra Bullock, though. Yeah, she's great. The movie is stupid. Why would they not name the children? That was dumb. It's, you know. You're asking me to believe that she just called them boy and girl for years. That's psycho. Yeah. Some people name their kids Apple. Like, you know what I mean? Like, everything in perspective, Kate. Everything in perspective. Bird Box is good. Okay. So Charity is obsessed with Bird Box. Now we're going to talk about something I'm obsessed with. <laughs> oh, God. This is this is so weird. You have weirder obsessions than me. Yeah. I mean, this is this is weird. So, yeah. I want to talk about about blood-based wellness absolutely not we're not talking about this <laughs> startups we're in, no pick something else transfusions with young blood from teenagers some claim it can reverse the aging process it's being tested in patients over the age of 35 as part of a clinical trial called ambrosia where people paid eight thousand dollars to get the rich growth factors found in blood plasma platelets Okay, listen, so 2018 was a, like, banner year for uh, blood-based startup scams in Silicon Valley because reporter John Kerryru, John Kerry, I always pronounce his name wrong, which is bad because I interviewed him. John Kerryu, I don't know. Anyways, he's a great, he's a great reporter. He wrote this book called Bad Blood. It's wonderful. It's about Theranos, this blood testing company that was once, you know, supposed to be the Silicon Valley unicorn like huge investors involved, like all these different uh, drug stores wanted to partner with them. And then so he basically traces how its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, is like scammed the shit out of people. Great read. It's going to be turned into a movie. Can't wait to watch it. But so the saga of Theranos was like a very 2018 story that demonstrated what happened when Silicon Valley gets too caught up and too good at selling its own hype. And it ignores stuff like whether the product or service it is selling makes any goddamn sense. And I kind of thought that that we were moving on. We were moving away. We had evolved as a culture away from believing in dubious Silicon Valley blood-based wellness startups. But uh, I read this really great Huffington Post investigation that came out last week. I think it didn't get that much attention just because it was like Christmas time, but it was about another very questionable blood thing. And I wanted to talk about it because it's called Ambrosia. I first heard about it in 2016 because so it, it kind of got hyped as a company that Peter Thiel was somehow interested in. He later denied that he had ever been a client, but initially it was sort of hyped as this company that Peter Thiel like wanted, wanted young blood from why do you think he denied being a client of the young because then people kept making fun of him for being like a vampire why didn't he lean into that i mean i don't know i don't i can't pretend to know what's going on in his mind but so the company basically it was was selling and currently is still selling blood transfusions from young people so say you're an old guy or you know even our age you could pay $8,000 and then get a bunch of young blood put into your body. And that was, it's supposed to make you healthier. But the Huffington Post investigation really laid out how 
despite all the hype around the company, there's really not much evidence that it its services do any good. You don't say. <laughs> and, Putting young blood in your body is not necessary. Well, okay, there is some research that's like shown that it, uh, like mice or rats, it can help, but like people, not so much. And so the investigation really laid out that Ambrosia's claims were thin and it also sort of laid out some some weird stuff going on with like the company on a, on the personnel side. Like it turned out that the founder who portrays himself as a doctor, like isn't allowed to practice medicine. He's explicitly oh. prohibited from practicing it's in Massachusetts. Situation. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't go far enough to call the company an out and out scam or anything like that, but it just, it seeded a lot of very, substantial doubts about it and it just sort of i i loved reading the story because i i'm all about making resolutions this year and i just want us to resolve as a nation to stop getting bamboozled by startups promising to make our health better by doing unbelievable sounding things because this happens all the time yeah in fairness Mm -hmm. if i could be devil's advocate in fairness Mm -hmm. do you have young blood no but it's just (laughs) i feel like Predating Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. humans, especially wealthy humans, I feel like have a historical obsession with immortality. Oh, and right? like just falling for quackery, for sure. Right. But I do wonder why this sort of thing, this sort of bizarre health, like dystopian health enterprise, mm-hmm. I so specifically associate it with Silicon Valley culture. Like, it's mm-hmm. not like I think Chuck Schumer is into young blood. You know what he I mean? Might be, but, I mean, well, yeah. maybe, right? But like, I, I specifically, if you were to describe, if you were to cold, if I didn't, if we weren't co-hosts of a podcast mm-hmm. and like you were just describing this to me, like the idea of like selling young blood, I'd be like, yeah, that's totally a San Francisco idea. That's totally some San Francisco Silicon Valley shit. I feel like there's this, there's a real obsession in the tech industry with like biohacking and sort of hacking and doing quantified living your way into a better lifestyle. And so this kind of company really like fits, fits in with that. I wonder if it's like the fault of journalists for not being more, uh, aggressive in investigating these companies. Like the HuffPo piece is excellent. It's coming out several years after this has been around though, like several years. I actually interviewed the Ambrosia CEO in 2016 because I was thinking about doing a ringer piece. I just didn't. It sounded fake. I couldn't. And then I didn't have the uh, wherewithal at the time to do an investigation. Now I'm like, shit, I probably should have pursued that. (laughs) But it's just, I don't know. You know, I think maybe I wish that we had more aggressive regulating bodies looking into these companies before they can start selling these services. Right. Um, like Therano scammed a lot of people for a lot of years before, before things kind of, kind of fell apart. It's interesting to see how, how like our longstanding obsession with, with hacking into or taking shortcuts into like greater health has just evolved and hasn't really right. gotten any more. Well, it's gotten more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but it hasn't gotten any more effective. I don't think snake oil cost that much right. back in the day. Right. Totally. Yeah. Well, okay. I think if t- you, you mentioned two things. You mm-hmm. mentioned like the, the idea that it would be nice if there were greater 
and more prohibitive regulatory scrutiny yeah. to avoid things like this. And then you mentioned something that I think is closer to our hearts, which is like the journalistic wherewithal mm-hmm. to detect stories like this earlier in the course of these companies or in the course of these trends. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I guess on the journalism side, I just always, I think of like science journalism is really hard to do. And it also just seems like, I don't know, like if, if I'm thinking of like mainstream journalism, like headline making journalism, it's it's hard for me to think of like the publications that are equipped even like to have the resources and to just have the like have the the sense of like how to read medical studies and mm-hmm. shit like that to to be as aggressive in policing this as as journalists are policing like politics, for instance. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wish I really wish we had that because I think that this is just as serious an issue as a lot of a lot of the politics stuff because it involves people's health. Right. (laughs) Even if it just involves Peter Thiel's health, it's just (laughs) (laughs) even even in that hypothetical. I don't know. It seems kind of strange to me. Okay, Mm -hmm. so, Kate, let's say hypothetically, Mm -hmm. let's say hypothetically I personally mm-hmm. uh started humoring the cbd oil trend mm-hmm. the cannabinoid i don't actually cannabinoid? Can, can, yeah cannabinoid yeah. oil trend cbd oil is like basically processing hemp into an oil that sort of like has um it, it doesn't like get you high but it has certain effects for treating like anxiety and pain and stuff like that mm-hmm and it's become this booming industry. It's huge. It's huge. Like the there's latest farm bill pets. seems to be. Pets getting CBD oil pe- left and right. I swear to God. Like pets every pet. Ugh. I know every pet owner I know in Brooklyn is giving their dogs, their cats. They're giving them little C- CBD pills. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm a pet too then. <laughs> I, got, I got some CBD oil. But it's like this boom industry. The latest farm bill is like. Like one of the first to relax sort of federal regulation of like hemp, mm-hmm. which seems like it'll be in 2019, like a sort of even larger boon for this emergent like cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. But that's a thing that like, I spent like two months just like reading about different companies yeah. and also just reading Reddit. Let's be honest. Um, trying to get a sense of like why this is a thing, why CBD oil, for instance, is a thing. Mm-hmm. And like, as much as I have, I have some, th- I have, favorable thoughts about my first uses of CBD oil mm-hmm. and yet everything about it down to the sort of like the hype. Uh, I want to say it, it, it seems like one of those industries that's like, is this just sort of a health and wellness like fad that exists for a lot of people to make a lot of money very quickly by sort of like overselling the health benefits of something that even the people who swear by it, it sort of admit that like the effects vary wildly among like, you know, yes, brands and among like people who take it. And it depends on sort of your brain chemistry and stuff like that. And it's like, even I'm susceptible to something because it seems so harmless and it's not super expensive. I'm not buying like virgin blood or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like a sucker. Am I a sucker, Kate? No, I mean, I do. So I wrote a piece about CBD last year and because I was trying to figure out whether whether it was like real or just way overhyped. And like my conclusion out of it was that it's kind of both like 
there are actual benefits in certain contexts when you use certain types of CBD. Like I talked to some researchers who were using it as an epilepsy treatment and, you know, they had peer reviewed research backing up their claims. But then you get, there's like tons of, I think one of the big problems is that, again, there's not much regulation over like what is being sold. So you can get some products that have like active ingredients in them. And then you have some products that are, you know, made in fact, industrial factories with a bunch of other nasty stuff in them. And they're both being sold as CBD. Right. So that I just think that the CBD market is a complete mess right now. And like 80% of the products are overhyped and it's really hard to figure out which ones are genuine or not. And I don't think you're a sucker, but I do wonder if it's the placebo effect or not, depending on what you took. Is this your roundabout way of just asking if I, if you can have some of my CBD oil? It's yeah, fine. It I'm you. happy to share it with you. You don't have to be mean. I mean, hello. We're co-hosts. I might. Yeah, I, I might. Uh, I have some. I can't help but get to the end of the segment and reflect mm-hmm. on the fact that thousands of years of human history and a century of exponential medical advancement have brought us to the point of CBD oil and the harvesting, blood of children. children's blood. <laughs> yeah, that is, so that's it. That's all we got. That's the only. <laughs> that's the only. It's <laughs> the only relief for anything is weed and blood of twelve-year-olds. Yeah. That's so. Weird. So basically, we wouldn't mind living longer. We wouldn't mind living better. But uh, I think we need to be very skeptical about the services and products offered to us promising to help us do those things because the it's just a mess out there. All right. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. Happy New Year, everyone. We're glad to be back. You'll hear us again in two weeks. Don't drink children's blood.